And welcome to those who are visiting here today, or I see some familiar faces that uh, are visitors as well. So welcome here this morning on this long weekend. And today we won't be doing discussion groups at the end. Okay, so you can always do one if you want, but uh, not officially. We'll just uh, end the service and send ourselves out into this long weekend. The first thing necessary for you is to be conquered by God. Only as God's vanquished captive can you share in God's victory. Our prayer, Heavenly Father, is that we would know what it means to be conquered by the love of Christ. We humble ourselves before you. Open our minds, our eyes, our lives. Redeem my words, my sinfulness, even as I claim this audacious claim to speak somehow on your behalf. It's like something to repent over that that claim could even be made. So Holy Spirit, come and bless us for this hearing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We had this service in here for George Galpin on Wednesday. It's one of those times we started off by mentioning that, well, George was 98 years old. He was in his 99th year. And I mentioned, Jim and I had spoken about it in my office before. We both kind of looked at each other and Jim said, I can't believe he's gone. It's his dad. But George, you know, he wasn't somebody who died. He lived. Other people died. And George just kind of sat right there behind where Bill Sagey is and just got older. And then George died. And here we are. And the service was fantastic. Before the service, just a couple hours before, some of us were at um, Cedarview doing the service for, this used to be okay to say this, and I'll use these words, doing the service for the old folks there. And, um, and I just decided that in the little five-minute thing that I shared and talked about Scripture and read Scripture to them, um, and it's not people who, like, some of the cognitive decline is fairly severe, so you have different levels in terms of what you can speak about and but uh, people in those kinds of settings tend to like when, like, if I talk about my grandparents or if I talk about, obviously, you can, you know, you, you like when you can identify with what uh, somebody's saying. And so I brought along the little service bulletin, the program for George's service. It has a picture on the front. I should have brought it up here. There's some in the back, I think, still. And we read Psalm 131, and then I talked about George and what a blessing he was. Excuse this for those who were there. I'm going to tell the same thing I told. You know this already. And I, hold, I held the bulletin out. And I said, and then George, George died. He was 98. And I said in this little group, I said, 98. And it's just like a little circle, wheelchairs and such. And, and I said, 98, that's really old, hey? And this one person piped up and said, this, this older woman piped up and said, well, these days that's not that old. <laughs> and I thought, of course. It's a question that actually impacts all of how we live, though we might not always pay attention to the question, and that is, what do we have to say about how things end? Not just our lives, though that clearly matters to each of us, but how does everything end? What is the end of all things? That's what this Revelation text is talking about. It's giving you a picture of the end of all things. And the truth is that right now, and you don't have to you know, make an argument to me or to one another, Right now, the world as it is, is not up to divine expectations. 
This is not fully the world that God intended. You know that, right? There's difficulty and pain and sorrow and disease and death too early for some and death at all and sin. And even some of the things that you despair over in the world, it's more difficult when you consider even myself, I have, I'm sinful. This is not the world as it's intended to be due to sin and rebellion. And though we don't understand it, and don't believe anybody who tells you they understand it, due to sin and rebellion and evil. Uh, A number of us are in a reading group. We're reading a book that I read a number of years ago, but my father-in-law who's here read it recently and passed it around a little bit. And so that, you know, started this idea of we should have a reading group. It's a Will Williman book who was... uh, theology professor and dean at, in, at Duke University uh, and uh, just quite influentially in the United States was, was known as like one of the top ten preachers. They have this list. Do you believe that? One of the top ten preachers in the United States for like, you know, 20 years running or something like that because he's funny and engaging and a little bit sarcastic. Actually, he's extremely sarcastic, but not so much in the pulpit, but a little bit. But Will Williman wrote this book called Who Will Be Saved? And the, the central point of the book is the much more interesting question than who will be saved is who does the saving. And so that your faith properly lived will focus on who does the saving, not determining who saved. Now that's a challenge for some people, but it's an interesting book. And Will Williman, speaking about this text in Revelation, says, Heaven is when God gets what God wants. He says, you know, people can think of heaven as kind of getting what we want in the end, and it's not that there's not, you know, fulfillment and peace. But really, heaven is where God gets what God wants, where the world will be as God intended. And that's the focus. What's interesting is that um, Jason Biasi, a friend who's been here and preached before, um, knows Will fairly well. He actually named, they actually named, uh, Jason and Jalen named one of their boys after Will, because Will's been quite influential in their lives. They know him personally. So I, had, I got into a bit of a conversation with Jason about this reading group. Next thing I know, Will contacted me, and he's going to join our reading group next week by Skype, because he's in North Carolina. But um, we're excited about that. God gets what God wants. The world that God intended has arrived and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Creation and salvation. And salvation is the point of creation. In over 25 years, I'm so old now. I've been in ministry for 25 years. I should just slowly shuffle off somewhere. Not yet, I hope. But in over 25 years of pastoral work, one of the things that I have recognized most strongly is that fear prevents us from seeing Jesus, even those who claim the name Christian. When fear is present, when it's at the base of anything, it is insidious, it infects, and it prevents us from seeing fullness of life in Jesus Christ. And fear means that we focus instead of who does the saving on who is saved. And so I've seen people, you see those doors right back there? And I still have this in my mind in prayers. People who have now died but who used to sit in the sanctuary here. And almost every week, I'm thinking of a couple of couples in particular, would come back and they would say to me, they would talk to me about their kids, now adults, 
who were not claiming the name Christian. And they had in their eyes this incredible fear. I mean, they were beside themselves, standing there. Let alone, I can think, what was in their own minds. They wanted some assurance from me. Our daughter does not say that she's a Christian. And they were terrified. I'm not making a claim as who's in, who's out. I'm just saying that fear actually prevents us from seeing Jesus Christ. And so I would pray, what can I say to these people? I don't want to give any kind of false assurance. I don't want to hurt them theologically, whatever else. And so rightfully, not dismissively, I would say, let me tell you about the God that I know. But that fear is so pervasive. Even in well-meaning families, it can get in so that families well-meaning in doing this, it's not condemnation, can send messages to their children that they might not be acceptable to God because of this or that or the other. And then the impulse of how we connect to the world, to those who don't believe, to those outside. If fear is at the base, what will happen is the primary point of connection, no matter what we say, will be that somehow there's a deficiency out here. We have things proper, and we're, you know, they're, they're kind of down here, no matter. And people, rightfully, those who, I, I, I had to go, I bought this bread this morning at Loblaws. Sorry. It makes it seem less communion-y, Right? But it was early this morning, I went to Loblaws, and I, and I was driving up Lonsdale, and I looked around at all the people who were heathens and not going to church. And let me tell you this terrible thing about them. They looked happy. There's a scene in John chapter 21. It's my favorite. I mean, I hate saying this because it makes, but it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It's the scene when Jesus appears to the disciples beside the lake after his resurrection. It's really the first lengthy interaction he has with, with his followers after the resurrection. And you know the scene. I've talked about it here a hundred times or more because it's my favorite, so you have to you know, deal with that. And, and Jesus, the disciples have gone back to fishing because Jesus has, has appeared to them as the risen Savior a couple of times, but you kind of can't control that. You know what I mean? You never know when he's going to show up or disappear. It's weird. It's fantastic fantastic type of stuff. And he, they've gone off to be fishermen again. They were never good fishermen. When he first met them, remember? The first time he met them, they couldn't catch fish, and they were called fishermen. And so now, after they've lived with him for three years, and he's taught them and spoken these parables and all of this, and then died and has been resurrected... They still don't know what to do, so they go back to fishing, and Jesus, and they're fishing kind of overnight, early in the morning, and they're not catching any fish, and Jesus appears by the side of the lake again. It's just so beautiful. It's a bookend to how he called them originally. And they can't catch any fish, so he says, you know, it's, it's similar to, like, you know, these stories when, did you try the other side? And they're like, well, of course we tried the other side. But then they try again, and they catch all these fish. And you remember Peter? Remember Peter? Peter is this guy who will tell you what you need to know and tell you what's wrong with you, probably. And Peter 
sees Jesus. John, this is in John, so John always gives himself the kudos. So John says that the disciple who Jesus loved recognized that it was Jesus, right? That's how he refers to himself, his name. But Peter recognizes Jesus too because he jumps out of the boat and he runs towards him. This is for me one of the most crucial points in all of Scripture because it demonstrates that perfect love drives out all fear. Because Peter had every right in that moment to be afraid of how Jesus would treat him. Because when was the last significant interaction that Peter had with Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ? It was when Jesus said to him, he said to him, remember Peter said, I won't let you die in the upper room. And Jesus said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then that happens. Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Remember that? One, two, three times. And then Jesus dies alone. It's just about the most devastating thing that a friend could do. Devastating particularly for the one who does it. And now the next significant time of interaction is when Peter recognizes Jesus on the side of the lake And he is so in love with Jesus that he jumps out of the boat and runs towards him. And Jesus, like, prepares breakfast. He says to the the disciples, come and have breakfast. That's one of my favorite lines. Because Jesus isn't trying to shake his finger at them. He's just trying to be with, just wants to be with them. And then sometime in that meal, that interaction, Jesus pulls Peter aside and has a personal conversation with him. Remember it? John chapter 21, you can look it up. This is how you deal with sin. Peter has denied knowing Jesus over and over and over again. And Jesus does not say, okay, Peter, I hate to have to do this, but I want to talk to you about your sin. In fact, he doesn't even name his sin. He doesn't say, here's what you did wrong. Ever. What does he do? Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. You can see how the question would hurt. And then again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And then again, how loving but painful is this? Peter, do you love me? Peter has kind of a breakdown. You know I love you, Lord, he had said. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. What has happened? A couple of things. First of all, with Peter, there is no tough guy bravado here. This is not Peter working things out for himself or making something happen. Peter does virtually nothing in this scene. Thanks be to God. And in Peter doing nothing, what has happened? He has been forgiven redeemed, recreated, 
and sent. And it's all the work of Christ. Peter's sin was never a problem for Jesus, trust me. It was only a problem for Peter. And Jesus erased it. One, two, three. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the denial is gone. Without ever saying, Peter, I have to have a hard conversation here. This is what I'm interested in as we move forward. That the work that we will bear witness to is the work of Christ, not our own. That we will recognize and put ourselves into the work of Christ in our own lives, even our sanctification. One of the things that I have been accused of, I've been accused of a lot of things, mostly they're wrong accusations, but I could come up with worse ones if you want. Do you know what I mean? Do you know this feeling that when people are accusing you of things and you're like, that's super wrong, but I know like way worse things that they could accuse me of? Um, and so one of the accusations I've had in terms of theological accusations is of being a universalist. Um, a couple of things there. First off, I don't you know. If, if you're ever going to accuse something, somebody of something, talk to them. Because actually never once have, has somebody come to me and said, Todd, I think you're out, Right? If, that's a really, really strong statement to make about someone. The theolo- I'll talk to you about what it is in a minute, but it takes some strength to even make the accusation. Back the strength up with actually talking to the person. But the reason universalism, most people who love the accusations don't actually know what it means. It, at its heart, it means kind of like everybody's saved, I guess. It's a lot more complex than that. Uh, I'm not a universalist. But let me tell you what I believe. And I, I think of it when I think of this situation with Peter and how he's redeemed by Jesus. I believe, you got to follow me for a minute here, okay? I believe that when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, something happened. And I don't need to do anything to make that thing have happened. But what I picked up sometimes in my Christian understanding as I grew up was that Jesus dying on the cross basically meant nothing at all until I did something. You understand? It made no difference to me at all. I was merely done. I'm not making a salvation statement in that. I'm not saying that therefore all are saved. I am not a universalist. I am saying that something actually happened so that when Jesus died and was resurrected, he became victor in this world and so that his salvation is being worked out in this world among Christians and that this presence can be seen even in people who don't claim the name Christian. That we can see at times the work of Jesus Christ, the beauty of Jesus Christ, in very, very many places. Because when he died and was resurrected, it made a difference. And it doesn't take me to make it effective. Now, 
my understanding of saying, yes, Lord God, I trust in this, means that I come to awareness of this and live in the light of it and know that salvation for sure. But something happened. And so I will, and I will never you know, apologize for this, I will seek to have a more robust understanding of what happened there and what Jesus is doing in this world than who is damned. That's my faith. And I have seen in these years of ministry that if the focus is more on are we acceptable to God or not, right, this type of stuff, the fear gets in and it's just so insidious. Even though we might be worshiping this Lord. Christian life as understood can be in three, three movements in a sense. It's really generalizing it, but there is justification. You old Bible students would know this. There's justification, which could be conversion, right? Like you, you're made right by God in faith in Jesus Christ. There's justification. Then what's the next one? You know? Sanctification. You're sanctified. So you, you, you are saved in a sense. You're justified. But then sanctification means your, your life begins to line up with that big truth. Is that good? Justification, sanctification, and then vocation. What's vocation? Vocation means you're sent to reflect this powerful love of Jesus Christ for all people. Actually, vocation is the whole purpose of the first two. What happens in some of the fear stuff is that, like, the other stuff becomes the center. Unless it's like, well, your vocation is to try to rescue some other people. Look what happens with Peter. Especially in terms of sanctification and vocation. Peter is sanctified not by something that Peter does. But by Jesus Christ reminding Peter who he truly is. Why would Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Do you think Jesus was unsure? He asked him three times. I don't think he was unsure. I think Peter had forgotten who he was. I think Peter needed to know, Peter needed to know again that he was identified, defined by this love he had for Jesus Christ. Peter, do you love me? It's not for Jesus that the question is being asked. It's not that Peter has to make some show for Jesus. Jesus didn't need this interaction. Peter did. It's Jesus Christ who even does the sanctifying. That's slightly different than some of how I understood, which was often the focus was on my own efforts. In this understanding, my own efforts are always a response. And then look at what Peter is given at the end. Justification, remember? Sanctification, and the last one, vocation. What does Jesus do? Feed my sheep. Go and love people with this same love that I have just shown you. You don't even need to tell them what they've done wrong. Jesus didn't to Peter. This is Revelation 5. We spoke about it last week and Claudia read it for us beautifully this morning. It's such a picture of the end of history, the the fulfillment of history, when God gets what God wants and all creatures are singing this praise. 
wrestle with that. You know, don't, don't take your discomfort and put it on me when the text says all creatures above the earth, on the earth, under the earth, everywhere. Wrestle with it and have the angst in yourself. What does it mean, all creatures? And this end of history when Jesus Christ is identified as the one who can open the scroll and John who's weeping at this vision because nobody can complete history. And I wept and I wept and I wept. And then an elder said, no, it's okay, look, stop crying. There's one who can open the scroll. And he said, look at the lion. We did this last week too. Look at the lion, the conquering lion of Judah. And John turns to look at the lion and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. It's a perfect picture of the end of all things. Why? Because the work of Jesus Christ in history, you're invited in, but it's his work. And there's nothing fearful about it. But you're invited in. And it's a perfect picture because it's both. It's the continuous work of the exalted one, the conquering lion. And that work is going on in this world and in your life right now, thanks be to God. And some of you recognize that some of that work is present and evident in those who don't call themselves by the name Christian. And one of your greatest witnesses is to, at times, help, if appropriate, to see that that work reflects the love of Jesus Christ and to respect their difference of faith. It doesn't mean you have to say they're Christian or not or this unsaved, saved stuff. But you know the truth, right? The work of that conquering lion is ongoing in this world. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. But the work of the crucified lamb is also ongoing in this world. The one who has given himself for all people. This is your faith. It is strong and robust and without fear. I think of those people at the back. I know their names are in my head right now. Some of you would be guessing. And they both have gone. They both have died. And I say, Lord God, what was it that made them so afraid? I've got to tell you about a vision that I had. And then we'll end. And we'll share communion together. And as I said, no discussion groups this week. I told some people this vision. And for those of you who think, man, that's weird. People, people who have visions, that's nuts. Um, I kind of think that way too. So <laughs> even as I share it, you know, I think visions often by definition are nuts. You have to just see, is God in this or not, right? So here's the vision happened in this room. A few... There's a few young people sitting up in the balcony. And have you ever been up there where the, when the woodpeckers start? If you leave the building in a few minutes and, and walk up far enough away from the building where you can see the top of the peak, there's three giant holes in the top of the building. This building is coming down. And there's three giant holes because it's woodpeckers or flickers. That's another name. I like that name better for the vision, okay? And if, if you sit in the back row sometimes, you'll hear this. 
It's, I can't do it. It sounds too wooden. It's, it's more driving than that. And Claudia comes into the church here at like, you know, five, six, seven in the morning and prays. Because she's the type of person who has visions too. It's all wacky and crazy. Don't worry about it, but some are wonderful. And Claudia comes in here and prays. And as you know, Claudia has a, a quite charismatic personality. I don't just mean that she's lovely and engaging. I mean that she has visions and prays in prayer languages and that kind of stuff that sometimes, you know, freaks people out, but it's also wonderful. So that's what I mean by charismatic. And I've always called Claudia, I've known Claudia for years, my friendly charismatic, because sometimes people who are super charismatic can seem to be angry at other people. Like, you don't, you don't have what I have, you should have it. And I haven't picked that up from Claudia, so I call her my friendly charismatic. And another joke that we have is when Dave Boyle used to work here, we, um, we'd get things come into the office, like you're invited to this event, this and a lot of them were like revival-type meetings, you know, out in Abbotsford or something. They're always out in Abbotsford. And there's going to be a meeting and this big gathering of a bunch of churches, and there's going to be a revival. And they have names like, you know, Revival Fire or like Spirit Wind or something. You know, they're all like those charismatic names. And so I made a joke, Dave and I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but it's true. Uh, I said the ultimate charismatic name would be Doves on Fire. And so Dave, being a graphic designer, made Letterhead with doves on fire and stuff, and it was just... And so when Claudia came along, and I knew she was, like, really friendly, and I didn't have to get her, worry about her being, like, angry at me for making jokes, um, eventually I called Claudia kind of my doves on fire person, and she loves it, I think. Do you? Okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> I hate it. This is the time to tell you. <laughs> Claudia's in here one morning praying, and she texts me not long after. And she says that the birds started like and if you're in here by yourself and that's happening it can be kind of amplified and she said but somehow the Holy Spirit used the sound in the, of those birds and just did this it's beautiful and filled the space and I was caught up you can ask her more about that but she's caught up so I start texting her back I remember I had my feet on my desk in my office and like I normally do, I don't know if you know this, I started with a joke. And I had no idea what was happening. I thought I would just kind of nicely kind of joke it off and also encourage, you know what I mean? So I started texting. Claudia, those flickers are going to get through. Imagine if it happened this morning. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a way that I can't describe. I felt enveloped, caught up. And I had this sense, you know, you careful with saying these kinds of things, but I had this sense of just keep moving your thumbs, keep texting. And I said, Claudia, those flickers are going to get through. And when they do, the doves are coming in behind them. And then I was caught up in this vision. It's hard to say it with you guys here, but you know what it was? This place caught fire. This room. And it was just all flames. And there were cherubim and seraphim and there were the burning up doves. And we, who were there, were caught up in ecstatic praise. And it was timeless. You don't know how long it was. I don't know. And then the flames died down. And we were standing there, and I can't remember any faces. It's almost like whoever I tell the vision to was there, that kind of thing. Whoever kind of nods at it. 
And the flames died down and I heard people speaking to one another. We were speaking to one another. And somebody said, with a smile on their face, but kind of awe too, the flames died down, those flames of praise, and somebody said, where's the building? Where are the walls? And then we heard the voice of Christ. And the voice of Christ said, you are my church, not exclusionary to any other church. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was just affirmation of the call. You are my church. I am calling you out with the healing of the hopeful gospel. And then the vision continued from there. I can share it with you later if you'd like. But I know what burned up in the flames. All the fear. Now it's more pastoral for me, and obviously I wouldn't give you all the details. But then God started flashing in my mind some people that I love dearly and all the pain that the fear has caused in families, relationships, faith. I am calling you out with the healing of the hopeful gospel. So to end, before communion, you look for little practical examples. I'm not saying it's because of our prayers. Lots of people were praying, and, but we pray. You know little Oliver that we've been praying for? Who knows? Allison, who comes here from time to time. Oliver's the little boy who fell out of the window, and Joanna Woodyard knows well the doctor who's the doctor is his dad. There's an article in the North Shore News. When's it from? Wednesday. Front page about Oliver's recovery. And then, it's so beautiful, a picture of him and his dad beside the window. Your call, your vocation in life, you don't have to scare anybody. (laughs) You have to look for the work of Christ in the world. Declare that faith. Do not be afraid. You are being called out with the healing of the hopeful gospel. I thank God that Oliver was spared, was brought back. But I also am aware that that doesn't happen for all kids. That's why it's, this world is not yet as God intended. But the completion of the world is not a dichotomy heaven and hell. I don't understand those things. They're too lofty for me. The completion of the world is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, for your goodness to us, and we pray for true vision. There's just no time in Christian history where we stopped reflecting on what we believe. We wouldn't be here today if some people hadn't said, I don't know if it's quite that way. Father, forgive us for thinking that now we've got everything right. Now theology's fixed. Help us to have a deeper trust in you, Jesus Christ, than that. Thank you for those who've come before who have had the courage to do this. And may we have the courage to do this now to present to the world a gospel that is entirely 
hopeful and to trust in you for the rest. Would you burn away the fear in our lives? Help us to know fully what it means to trust in you starting this morning by coming to this table and knowing that in your death and resurrection something happened and is still happening even if we say nothing about it. You gave your life for us while we were yet sinners. But Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge what you have done for us by receiving this bread and cup. And we put our trust in you. And we declare that death and resurrection until you come again. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you know that in receiving this bread and this cup, you know that forgiveness of sins and hope unto all life is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you bless this bread and this cup. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.